This is Mary Celeste Bell. Welcome to the Blackberry Podcast, where we'll dive into stories and knowledge of the incredible people that are part of the Blackberry story. You'll hear from longtime friends, amazing visiting personalities, and our own inspired team members. In part two of our series of conversations from the 2019 Pro-Am Classic, retired cycling pros Craig Lewis and Robbie Ventura broke down the stages of the Pro-Am race and shared some laughs about their friends and colleagues riding as the team leaders. First off, great careers, um, but I think your, your post-cycling, you guys have both done a great job of not necessarily even capitalize, I mean, capitalizing on cycling, but ultimately being successful post-cycling. That hasn't always happened for a lot of former professionals that have been as successful as you guys. What's the secret? Um, how is that? How is that transition process went for both of you? And um, and if you were going to instruct and help other professional cyclists make that transition, what would you do? Well, actually, one of the things you said last night in the introduction was that Craig started his business after he was done racing, which is not true. So Craig had already figured out that he yeah. wanted to do something different. Yeah. and With a year on my contract. Yeah, with a year left in the contract, yeah. starting a wine importation business while traveling to and from China for your race team. Yeah, four or five times. Europe, three times that year. That much? Yeah. Yeah, and so... All the major U.S. races. Having that kind of... Um, well, it's, it is foresight, and it's like... As a professional cyclist, especially on the road, you've got tons of time when you're not racing. And so Craig was smart enough to figure out that I can do this at the exact same time. And I think, you know, your community that you built through that is is such a big part of it. Mm -hmm. The the people that were helping you see that and help you achieve that. I mean, were Bobby and Lachlan a part of that at that point? Yeah, yeah, 100%. I started the business because Bobby needed help bringing wines in for the restaurant. And I, I knew I had a guaranteed customer that was going to take 100% of the product. And that opened, he opened the doors to, you know, the Aspen market, the Denver market, and then it kind yeah. of just expanded from there. But I knew it was fairly low risk for the first few months at least. So I could figure it out. What was interesting though, I, I went to Girona, your mm-hmm. apartment in Girona. I don't, you were on, I think, High Road? Yeah, when you were there, yeah. And um, this is amazing. I mean, I don't know how much professional cyclists made at that time, but I went into his apartment, which was right on the canal there, and I walked up these little tiny stairs, and there was wine boxes everywhere. <laughs> and I was a pro cyclist. I mean, I'm looking at boxes and boxes of really expensive wine, and I was like, wow, the, you know, this is this is pretty intense, pretty amazing that he's got this sort of selection as kind of a neo pro. You know, it, what, it, I don't even. It wasn't all even cellared. It was just. It just had lots of. Boxes. That was my first question. Did Bobby know you weren't taking good care of his wine? No. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's it's not cellared. Yeah. It's hallwayed. It's yeah. hallwayed. Yeah. It it's just like it. I mean, in Spain, it's pretty cool in those hallways. Yeah. But your love for yeah. wine was way way back. Yeah. I don't. <laughs> not many guys in your team love wine like you did. No, no one. No one was into food and wine really. Racing bikes over there, well, which food, is unfortunate. Food is scary. Wine yeah. is something you're not supposed to have. So, how often you, were you yeah. drinking? Every day. <laughs> <laughs> so I well, asked Tyler that question last night at dinner. Yeah. And he said, yeah, old school, back when he first started, there'd be European pros that were drinking every night. Yeah. But by the time he finished, like, they kind of clamped down on that. Yeah. Yeah, but we had a role on the team no wine at any race unless we won it. 
but that year we won like 120 races. So <laughs> almost. Yeah. So yeah. it wasn't illicit when you no, won that much. No. But if you weren't winning, no chance. Yeah. No yeah. wine. No Do you wine. remember when you fell in love with it? Uh, just visiting these regions and racing through them. I mean, every bike race is in a wine region pretty much. You kind of can't avoid it. And it's so much part of their culture. And we didn't have that in South Carolina. I don't know if you've ever been to South Carolina, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not a big wine scene down there. But like you would just kind of go off by yourself. The team's all going here. Hey, I'm going to go check out this vineyard. Mm -hmm. And plan training camps around visiting wine regions. When I moved to Boulder in 11, the first day looking at the town, we walk into Frasca and it's packed. And we turn around to walk out and Bobby runs across the whole restaurant. Like Craig Lewis, right? Oh, yeah. Because he used to race bikes and he still follows the sport. And so he dragged us back in there and sat us down and sat with us and be like, what's going on? And what are you was doing that here? Your first, your first free night of drinking at Frasca? Oh, we got charged. You, get, yeah. you still got charged? Oh, for sure. There's no, you get a free meal there? Only when you're paying. Yeah. <laughs> Me too. I mean, it's, it's incredible. Craig's, Craig uh, has one moment that I don't know if I can go into the entire thing, but Craig basically committed to buying dinner and drinks for 40 people yeah. at Frosca. In front of Courtney, his wife, who... She didn't know I was going to do that. Just... What? Yeah. I mean, her response to this is hilarious. Craig's basically like, "Don't worry, everyone. I've uh, I've taken care of the bill." <laughs> and and Courtney's like looking up at him at the end of this little speech, yeah. and she's like, "What?" Yeah. And then Craig like tries to fix it by saying, "But if you would like to give a couple hundred bucks each, that would be great." <laughs> <laughs> It was yeah. so funny. The time between when he said he had paid for everyone's meal oh, and then when he said so that was like the longest time in Courtney's life. And of course, not everyone paid. Oh, so no. thank you. For everyone dinner. left. <laughs> I paid. I paid. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. How about your transition, Kenny? Uh, you know, for me, I think it was um, like Craig. I, I knew that I was only going to be racing for a certain amount of time. And while I was doing it, it wasn't, it, there's a lot of hand to mouth that goes on when you're racing on a contract. You know, you might think that that one contract you get is a big one. It's, it's two years. It's amazing. It's got, you know, all you have to do is race your bike and win. Um, but that is so tenuous. And so when I transitioned out of road racing and I went from one contract to building out 11 or 12 different contracts with endorsements and I was able to change kind of what business model I was running under. I knew even still that I wasn't going to be able to race forever. So I, I would start to, um, I start to make these contracts. So they overlapped at different times. So I never was going to be out of a job. So I would always have one contract end when, you know, two more would ha last another year or two. And then I would renegotiate that one and kind of walk them forward instead of, what is traditional, which is like you sign a contract in September, October at, at the latest, hopefully, and you already know you have 18 months until you're out of a job or 24 months if you're lucky. Um, and so when I eventually made the decision to stop, I had back problems and I was really struggling with racing and trying to maintain my position position at the front. Um, 
it wasn't a transition that I went from making an income to no income. I actually made more money when I stopped racing because I had more time to fulfill the contractual obligations or how I was able to use those relationships to make new sources of income. So I actually did better when I stopped. What, what are examples of those contracts? So like Red Bull was probably the best contract I had because it would, um, not only was it good in the sense of just our relationship, but it was also good for all of our other partners because they would see Red Bull and they'd be like, okay, well, I want to plug into whatever they're doing. Um, so that really helped to create more opportunities from just that. Shoe deals, glasses. Yeah, so you have, uh, so, you know, when Craig was racing in a world tour team, you would have one contract and it covered every single category, what clothing you're wearing, what bike you're riding, wheels you're riding, all those things. And so when I was racing cyclocross, every category was open, so I could, I could fill each of those with a new contract. Um, and I avoided kind of the blanket contracts on purpose so I could, you know, everyone wants to find a place for their product and marketing dollars. And I just found a better way to do that than what was known before. Have others copied that? Then? Yeah, so Jeremy Powers was another guy that did that directly after me. I think Ted, um, Ted's probably done a good job. Yeah, about Ted it. is doing really well now. Ted King. Um, yeah. You know, he's, I know that he's got. I think 10 solid contracts now. Um, and, and when to fulfill a contract, it's, hey, come to this race. And then if you win, you get a bonus. It makes it very simple. But um, if that contract only has five appearance days attached to it, it's great because you're going to take care of those five throughout the year stacked on top of another one. So you can look at a weekend where you'll make, you know, 10, 20, $30,000 as opposed to lining up at a race against 150 other people. And if you win, you win. If you don't win, you, you make nothing. Um, and that's really the, the best way to make cycling work, you know, for a rider like me. I'm not gonna win the Tour de France. What, this Justin Williams, the sprinter? Yeah. He does it the same way, right? Yeah. Some of the people are starting to rasan, like. It's the privateer mm -hmm. model. Um, so if anyone knows motocross or supercross, like privateers are the ones racing against the factory racing teams. And it's tough, tough living. Like you really have to hustle, but if you do it right, you do well. Um, I think in cycling, because the landscape is constantly changing, it's it's a way to it's a way to take that in and, and work with it, as opposed to sitting there waiting for someone to call you to say, "Hey, good job in that race. We want to give you a contract." And that's really what it was mm -hmm. like when we started. Yeah, was like, "Oh, I hope someone notices me. I hope that person I." you know, maybe shook their hand at at the podium was going to give me a contract, but there's, there's so little guarantee in that. Control more your destiny. Yeah, exactly. You have a, your schedule, you have a little bit more freedom there. Yeah. The problem is mm -hmm. you don't, teammates. Do you miss teammates when you ride like that? Yeah, that was probably the biggest thing when I first stopped was, um, you know, not having that camaraderie. But I stopped racing on the road in 2010, but I kept racing cyclocross after that. So I was still around the racing community. And then when I stopped racing, I would still go to the events in some other capacity. And, and then it was, you know, just 10 times more fun. And my friends were still there. So, yeah, I didn't miss it that much. Okay. Um, would you guys have done anything different? Like, you look back at your careers, right? I mean, I know you have, you've had, uh, everybody has these ups and downs. But if you can, like, if you were to change one thing or if you, if you had a, a fresh landscape, what would you do different? Kind of keep your same kind of road or would you have... Um, 
Well, it's kind of a, for me anyways, it's, it's a tough, it's a tough thing to, to answer. I think in my, in my career trajectory, coming from mountain bike to cycle cross to road, I kind of made what I could of what was there. So the sport of cross was growing. And so I was able to kind of take something I love to do and, and, and help build it and latch onto it. And, you know, I think back to road racing, especially, um, at the time I did not know how to, to fuel myself and to do the training. I thought I was doing it right, but of course I wasn't. I didn't learn how to eat until I was like 30 something when I met Alan and, and Alan and Bijou would make me food and I'd be like, wow, we're, it's okay to eat this. Yeah. I mean, I grew up in this, like such, such a restrictive, um, like the the food for a cyclist racing in in the world tour or as a professional is such a bad thing or it was at that time and it wasn't until then i was like wow i feel so good my belly's full i can i can hammer up this climb if i could go back i'd teach myself how to eat well you know 20 years ago because i'm sure i would have done better How about training? Like, would you have trained a lot more, a lot less? Would you have done anything different on that front? Would you have started earlier? I was an under trainer, so I probably would have trained a little bit more. But I think I was under training because I was constantly under fueled, and I was always struggling between racing too much and being too tired. Yeah, I was an over trainer because I had to train with George. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> I was always tired too. Yeah, yeah. I would have changed. Uh, I guess I just would have avoided cars and poles a little, <laughs> a little better. It would have been fine. Yeah. It's kind of Last tough to risk. do, though, Craig. Yeah, it is tough to do. Right? Can, you, can you discuss yeah. a little bit more, though? Like, you said that now you eat different and you eat more and you're more fueled. Like, yeah. Just tell us a little bit more details on that. Like, what do you actually do? you actually have red Now? No. But I, I would if I were still racing. Um, so where we came from then... Um, was we would kind of, just like the American public, we would catch on to a diet or the idea of a diet and just run it to, into the ground. So it would be like fat-free. Everything's fat-free no matter what. Um, gluten-free really kind of came on as I was stopping. Yeah. Um, just a salad after a ride. Yeah, like... No carbs. Just not that eating. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I was racing on a Spanish team and... We would do six or seven hours, and then you'd finish the ride at like, what, 3, 4 p.m. Maybe you'd have a yogurt, and then you would eat a Spanish dinner, which is 10 p.m. And so you'd sit in this hotel room just like, oh, my God. And it wasn't even, it wasn't even like you couldn't do anything. You're just in this state of shock the whole time, and you're trying to do something with your brain, but eventually you're, you run out of energy for even your brain. You know, it's just such a horrible thing. And, and restriction is like how they control people and how they control riders. It's a, it's more than just nutrition. It's, it's almost like a power thing for a lot of those teams. Um, but learning how to eat was great because all of a sudden I knew when to eat and I could eat a lot when I was training a lot. And when I wasn't training a lot, I, I wouldn't eat as much. And that, for me, it stopped like panic eating or eating one thing like uh, like almond butter. Oh my God, almond butter is like the most amazing thing, but you can OD on that stuff. <laughs> so, <laughs> am I alone in thinking and being, no, experiencing this? <laughs> yeah, that's so true. Like, you chase this 
Yeah. <laughs> um, talk about cyclocross a little bit. Talk about like the, the I mean, like in, I know in Chicago, it's gotten over the last five years, it's it's been the only component of, of cycling in our area that's really grown. Yeah. Um, and grown quickly. I think cross is a great uh, opportunity to open up for people to get into the sport of cycling. And it's not uh, asking you to ride 100 miles. It's not asking you to, um, you know, find a mountain bike trail. You can usually do it almost anywhere. And, and that's a big draw for a lot of people. But it's also a really strong community. So you can do it with your friends and, you know, everyone's learning this together. Uh, one thing that that's really common in cyclocross is that everyone feels like they've discovered the sport. It's like you have this real direct connection with no one else knew about it until I found it, even if it happened last year, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, and every generation is the same way. So I found it 20 years ago because somebody just hit it, said, hey, why don't you come to a race? I feel like I discovered it, you know? McCormick, right? Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, it's older than mountain biking. It started in like the early 1900s. Yeah. It's crazy how, how old it is, but... You know, we uh, right now the the growth in the sport is really due to the mid twenties person who's like maybe started riding to work if they live in a city and they they really like to ride. They can't necessarily afford a, a Peloton or go to Soul Cycle class that much, but when they hear about a bike race, they'll go they'll go do that. And it's easy to put on. I mean, everybody's got a park, super easy, you know, mm -hmm. closed roads. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty yeah. safe. It's a little bit slower. Mm -hmm. Great for viewing. Yeah, great for viewing, and it's short. Mm -hmm. I mean, you're done in 45 minutes. <laughs> In, yeah. a, in a market like Chicago, there's so many people that, that can touch it, right? That yeah. can get there and do it. Mm -hmm. um, but it's, it's really caught on. Do you think gravel is going to start to take cut into that a little bit or no? Or do you think it's um, going out? Yeah, I think it's complementary in a lot of ways. We, uh, you know, when we ride mm -hmm. nowadays, I, I don't go on road rides necessarily. You know, riding on the road for me is, is like, well, if I, if I want to, and I really want to do it, I'll go ride on the road. But if I'm just going to go for a ride by myself, I'll go find the quietest road I can possibly find. And I'll, it's usually going to be dirt. And I'll just go ride for that. Gravel events are like mm. the best kind of combination of the bike event, the scene, your friends. You start 500 people at a time or 1,000 people at a time. And so if you want to race, you can go ahead and race. But if you just want to ride, you can, you can do that too. What do you think of gravel? You mean getting into I love it. Yeah, that's all I do now too. I head straight up mm -hmm. the hills in Boulder and straight on gravel. But when I was training, I would avoid it at all costs. Yeah, it's so if weird. If we got on a road that turned to gravel, George would get pissed. We're flipping. <laughs> and I would be the same because we're on like 21 millimeter tires or whatever, pumped yeah. up to 120. You know you're going to flat or crash right away. But now it's it's the, it's the best place to be, I think. Yeah, like Boulder, Super James, Super Sunshine. Mm -hmm. They all You drive the pavement all the way to the end and then turn around. That's what we yeah. used to do. Yeah, no way. And they, so, so question on that note, you're trying to go into other disciplines from road. You are in a state, not like Colorado, but you don't have those miles on end. Yeah. Gravel roads. How do you think? How do you make that? Let's try this tough one. Yeah, yeah. start. Go ahead. You want me to start? Where, where <laughs> are you coming from? Connecticut. There's definitely good gravel up there. 20 miles. <coughs> yeah. It's a lot of up and down. I, was, I mean, equipment's key with all that stuff. I mean, as Tim can tell you, being on wire tires and lower pressures and just getting used to that feel is going to help you on gravel, I think. But, but gravel is just a connector. I mean, that's how you should really think of it. It's not going to find gravel to train on gravel. Yep. But if you're going to do a 50-mile ride and you're on gravel for 20 and it's half a mile at a time, that's fine. 
because that's what shows you where you can go when you start to look deeper into the map. I mean, when you ride every day for years and years, you've got, you've got, you know, scar tissue. It's like, you don't want to keep doing the same thing. You want to go find somewhere new to go. And, and that's what gravel, that's the opportunity that gravel gives you. But when Craig says lower pressure, no one really knows what that means. It, um, if you were to have a gravel bike, what kind of pressure would you have? Like, just shout out a number. 40, 30, 50, um, 65. Those, those are good, good answers. You guys are obviously Wrong like audience. riding. Yeah, it's bad audience. Um, but if you put 110 in your road tire, that's, that's too much anyways. But a gravel bike, I mean, I don't think I've ever ridden more than 45 in the last bunch yeah. of years because the tires get bigger and bigger the higher the volume the lower the pressure and it's okay to you know hit ground once in a while if you have tubeless which is a whole another whole another ball game mm -hmm. do you really need a gravel bike you just put 28 cs on your road bike you can do whatever you want and then when you get rattled off your bike for the enough times you'll be like all right cool i think i'll get a gravel bike you can fit. For my experience, I would say it's how much time you spend on other than gravel. That's where I found the breaking points because I do have the road bike with the 28 tubeless. Went okay. Went okay, but when I did it over the 80 miles, the body could be just in the position and the shock absorbent. It was it wasn't good. The, the lack of shock absorption. Yeah. Gravel bikes are comfortable. They're, they're yeah. just smooth. Upright, Everything's comfortable. And that's the goal, right? You're on this rougher terrain, so you want to be a little bit more comfortable. You're on your bike for a longer period of time for gravel. I'm even comparing it to cyclocross, right? Cyclocross, there's a lot of low pressure, but short effort. You can be a little less comfortable, right? Instead of 45 minutes or an hour. Yeah. Case, right? But if you're riding gravel out in the middle of nowhere, you don't want to ride 25 PSI, but you want to be a little bit higher than that so you don't get stuck out in the middle. Right. Yeah. Yep. And most of the gravel, there's some road section segments, right? So you won't have any pressure. Mm -hmm. um, so if I would advance my question, if sorry, I'm hijacking you. No, I don't know. <laughs> my gravel, sorry. Delta cancer. Right here, yeah. 200. Yeah. Have you guys done that? I have. Or, I have not. Yeah. Okay. You've done the whole thing? No, I didn't finish. Okay. okay. It's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> That's rewarding. That's uh, how I have to do it, right? The DQ event next year, just FYI. Uh, <laughs> you gotta do it. It's amazing. <laughs> this year? DQ? No, no, we did, we did it a couple years ago, but it, we're doing it next year. It, you should we're totally. Excited. We're all excited about it. You should totally yeah, do yeah. it. <laughs> I think you're doing the XL, right? The 350, no? 350. No, 200. The 200 you do? Yeah. I'm just pushing you. Okay. <laughs> Sometimes you have to stretch. Yeah, exactly. Reach for new heights. We stretched last time. <laughs> so, Friday, Friday afternoon of, of Dirty Kansa. There were, what, 175 people starting a 350-mile yeah. race. Thousands of people sending them off. It was amazing. It was like the finish of Leadville on a Friday afternoon. And then we raced on Saturday. I was there this year. I'd, I did the bite-sized version. It was 50. It's really nice. I'd, I would highly suggest it. <laughs> but it's, it's, a, it's a really cool scene. So you'll enjoy it no matter what. It's just gonna, there will be times when it absolutely sucks. And, and those are the good ones when you get through that, right? I yep. mean, like I think when, when you're, when you're, Dirty Kansas meant to put you at your limit, 
At for point, sure. At least once, maybe even twice. Mm -hmm. And getting through that is what makes it, makes it so special. I mean, it brings the community together, brings the people you're with together. It's part of the, the allure of the, of the event. So you don't want to go through that thing and not feel like it was easy. You actually miss something if that happens. And it's not going to happen, so don't worry about it. When you say signing up, you're going to have like that experience for sure. Exactly. The, the um, feeling of like an Iron Man finish, watching it on TV, growing up, like it's dark and you know people are trying to make the cutoff. Like Leadville was the first time I saw that in a bike race, you know, where people are watching the last people come over and everyone's just in it for them. Yeah, totally inspired by the effort that they're putting out. Kansas has that in spades. It's the exact same thing. So no matter what you do, no matter how much it hurts, you, you're going to love being a part of it. Yeah, and you're, and you're not going to have a, you can plan out everything you want and there's going to be problems, guaranteed. You're going to flat, you're going to rip off your derail, you're going to bonk, you're going to, all these things are going to, these great things that happen to everybody who rides enough um, are, are going to happen. And you have a good opportunity to have multiple things happen. So you can check a lot of boxes. You might even fall and check that box. You can play bingo exactly. for sure. Um, so you guys know that, that Tim is, uh, is involved with USA Cycling. He's involved with raising money and growing the sport. We have an Olympic year coming up. Uh, and we talked a little bit on the car coming here, which I thought was a mm -hmm. great conversation. Talk to these guys about, A, what you do, uh, what your role is there, um, and then what we're looking for, You know, wh where this sport is heading over the next yeah. three or four years and what you're thinking about the, the next crop. Well, I'm sitting next to uh, one of our new supporters, Craig. Um, Craig and I went for a ride in Boulder, and he's like, he's like, all right, tell me more about the foundation. Like, what's going on with USC Cycling? And I'm like, all right. And so we sat there in his kitchen, and we went down a little bit of our own like experiences in, in that rabbit hole, but we didn't go that deep. Um, but we talked about what it's like to be a, a part of a sport that has given us so much, and like, and how how it went, but also what were the reasons why we kept going. And for us at USA Cycling, it's, it's a game-changing year for us because we're, we're looking at it like people's experience in cycling is not just about racing, but it's about how much they're a part of the sport in different ways. I mean, just talking about gravel alone is, we, no one would have said the word gravel three years ago in this, in this audience, you know? Um, and cyclocross kind of in the same vein, but when we're trying to prepare our best athletes to go to the national championships or the world championships or the Olympics, um, we need to be able to be there for them when they're getting there. We have a, a woman right now who's mountain bike world champion, was mountain bike world champion up until a couple weeks ago, Kate Corney. And so she's a really the person that I think of the most when I think about an example for all of us as athletes, but also if you're a parent and you've got kids that are getting into different sports, you know, she went to Stanford, finished her undergrad there, were racing internationally with the US national team and would do these trips that would be two or three weeks at a time, come back, keep going to classes, go on another trip a few weeks later, do another World Cup at the under 23 level. And then she graduates Stanford, she graduates the under 23 category, and then she wins the elite world championships for the first time in 20 years for us as, as a country. It's like, we have so many other sports taking our, our kids from, from cycling. You know, we're not learning to ride um, as a guarantee every single time. So I think stories like that are the ones that like, kind of tell you that you don't need to 
you know, specialize entirely in one sport, but you can be a part of a community that is based around cycling, but you can get something out of what will help you in life at the same time you're competing. I mean, mm-hmm. when, we, when we came up, it was not as if it was even a suggestion to go to college and race. You were, if you were good enough, absolutely not. You don't go to college. You, you go and you race and you see what happens. Um, and I, I think being a part of that, changing that conversation is really important to me. Um, and so now I, I work with the foundation. We, we raise money generally from individuals. We, we look for people who are supportive of what they want to see out of a, a Team USA. They want to be a part of something that's really, you know, a, a movement that's important for all of us. But um, in cycling, it, it's especially important because it's a not, uh, we're not government funded at uh, USA Cycling. So the USOC will give us support, but it's not like we're uh, Britain, which has got the lottery, the national lottery um, has given them, you know, many tens of millions of dollars a year all across these different disciplines every single year. And so you see it now when they win the tour, they win, you know, on the track, especially um, mountain bike, it's all these different categories. So um, you know, being a part of this and, and helping to, you know, create a better USA cycling is definitely something I'm excited about. And, and talk to us about, the, the, I mean, the future of our, of our athletes. I mean, we, we have an Olympic year coming up. Mm-hmm. What do we have in the hopper? What areas are we going to hopefully have some good success at? I mean, we talked about this young super stud. Sep? Sep Coos? Sep Coos, no, the, the mountain biker. Young. Oh, Chris Blevins or Quinn Simmons? Quinn Simmons. Yeah. I mean, this guy seems like... We were talking about him at lunch. Um, yeah, I mean, there's, we have these incredible athletes and it's like, how do we give them a home, especially in those transition years of, of 17 to 23? Um, but how do we have programs that will capture these kids? What we haven't done well is to have a big enough funnel and opening to the funnel. And so now, like, if we can make it easier for kids who are physically talented to become a part of cycling, then I think we're going to have more. We're going to have more champions no matter what. Um, you know, luckily a kid like that grows up in Durango, which is a really strong cycling community, and he's able to find his home. But there are kids like that everywhere around the country, so we need to do a better job of collecting them. And, and collegiate cycling. I mean, that seems like it's producing yeah. a lot more. Um, you guys know Mike Woods. You know that name. Mike Woods, he's a Canadian on EF. He was a, a runner in college. He went to Michigan. Sub four minute mile. Sub four minute mile in high school. Just fast. Um, I don't know if you tried that. <laughs> <laughs> but he, he came into cycling at 25 and he was top three at Worlds last year. Um, incredible story, but how many other athletes that come from soccer, running, Nordic skiing in the winter, whatever it is that we need to get them into cycling. And so collegiate is a great way to do that because you can have these collegiate programs that exist alongside their specific varsity program and hopefully get them involved. And then when it doesn't work out or maybe they kind of age out, if you're a rower, if you don't go to the Olympics, you're done. And so there are what, maybe 16 people that go to the Olympics across different categories. So there are thousands of, of Olympic level rowers that age out or a skill out from every graduating college year, you know? So we need to get them into cycling. Yeah. 
Yeah, big guys, big strong guys. Super suit guys, right? Yeah. This Lambie guy. I mean, I mean. Oh my God. We're talking about this guy, Dirty Kanza to. Oh yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that's crazy. Tell us a little. I I don't know anything about this guy. How did he get discovered? So his story is awesome, and uh, pardon me for uh, dripping here. Um, So Ashley Lambie is a great a great story because he was a bike shop kid out of Lincoln, Nebraska, um, who was going to college, and he loved to ride. And his idea of riding was doing a randonnée. Do you guys know a randonnée? It's like 600K at a time. So he'd ride somewhere, ride back, and that would be 600K with his, you know, with an event. And he'd go it's back to school tough. on Monday. Similar to, to Swain, yeah, for sure. Um, and then he started doing gravel events because that's what was around. He would do a local gravel race in, in Nebraska. And then he, uh, he gets on to a, a Tuesday night... Um, track workout race and instead of being on a track it's in a grass field with a mowed grass track and so it'd be a half mile it would be mowed like 40 feet wide and there would be 20 30 people and they'd have basically a cross bike but fixed gear so they'd have a track bike with a little thicker tire and they would race and they would do points races and and everything until the sun came down and so now he's like, wow, maybe I like track riding. But he's, he's still going to school. He works in a bike shop. And so he goes to a, a local track event with a, with a velodrome. But he had to drive, you know, 800 miles to a velodrome. And he wins the race. And then he gets invited to a talent ID camp. So he goes to talent ID camp on a real track. And he wins. And then he gets invited to nationals, or he qualifies for nationals. Goes to nationals, he wins. And then, so this is a guy who would race for like 24 hours at a time or do Dirty Kansas, mm-hmm. which is like, you know, nine hours, uh, sorry, 10 hours, yeah, no, 10 hours. Yeah. Well, if you're really fast. Right, if you're really fast. Yeah. Yeah, I think it was like fourth, okay, fourth or fifth. Okay. So he's now racing on the track and the guy goes to, uh, he goes to qualifies for Pan Am games from the Nationals win. He breaks the world record in the individual pursuit. Brad Wiggins had it before him. Wow. And this is a guy with a handlebar mustache who had been riding for like two years. Oh, sorry, less than two years on the track. But like Ashton Lambie. He's, he's, a, he's a freak. He just broke his world record last week again. Third time. Wow. So he's he lowered. He won the Olympic gold medal. The problem is the Olympics took the individual pursuit out. Uh, team pursuit, yeah. though. He's doing the so team he's team. doing the team pursuit. And so we had Ashton at a foundation event we did in New York City this spring. And and somebody had asked, Ashton, we're, we're at a table of like 12. Ashton, if, if, you, if you can tell us what would be the number one thing that you would need for success athletically. And it's like, you know, um, wind tunnel, um, you know, power meter. Like those are the things that you kind of automatically think like, oh, this will help him. He's like, we need, I need better teammates. Team pursuit, yeah. you need to have four people. Right now, he's pulling nine laps out of 16 because he's so strong. And so he needs. He's a small guy. I mean, he doesn't. He he's doesn't, not big. He's 5'8 at the most. It's incredible. Like, when you, when you meet this guy, not only is he super nice, he graduated college, by the way, um, he's uh, really smart, but he's like, he didn't know how good he was because he never really raced against the best in the world. How old is he? 27. 
Would he ever think about going to the road and, and forging a uh, career? We connected him with, with Vodders okay. for EF to do this alternative calendar um, or put him on the team. And he has, he has come so far out of left field <laughs> that he has no real interest in doing a big road race. Like, if you tell him, hey, you know, you can do Perry-Roubaix, he's like, that sounds cool. But it's not like, oh my God, I want to do it. But so take a guy from doing a 24-hour effort into yeah. a, a four-minute effort, and he's not only the best in the world, but best in the world by far. I mean, the guy is just such a pure talent. It's, it's incredible. And I mean, he's but he's gone to the lab, VO2 max. I mean, they, they have all this stuff on him, or is he kind of off like, the charts? Yeah, mm -hmm. out of nowhere. I think it's one of the coolest stories. Field of dreams, man. He, 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 this guy is like an old school. <laughs> he's got a mustache. I mean, he doesn't really care. It's just it's fun. <laughs> fun to see that. Uh, talk, let's talk about superstars. Lewis Vanderpool, Van Ert, psychocross to road riding. Yeah, that's crazy. What do you think? Yeah, Tell those guys are insane. Are they going to be? They, is that the future kind of? I mean, it's, it seems probably like, Vanderbilt probably win it, world it's championships. It's now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I think it's now. Vanderbilt it's, wins uh, the world championship. I think he's got to be the favorite, right? Van Ert's got to be right there. Yeah. So he, he's injured now, but yeah. He's injured. Yeah. yeah All from the you remember from the tour? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's not back though. No. He's barely riding. He's riding 10k at a time. Apparently, the first surgery was botched. Shocker. He's in the Pyrenees in France. They're just like, yeah, you'll be fine. <laughs> but think about that. I mean, that, that's that's not a traditional transition, right? I mean, I mean, I guess the big guy, the other Dutch guy that came from Cyclocross. Um, Lars Boom. Lars Boom, and then a quick step. Steve Steve Bar, Bar, yeah. yeah. But these two guys, I think, have taken another level. Yeah, yeah for sure. Yeah. yeah. So you guys know who we're talking about, right? Matthew Vanderpool. These guys have won the World Championships in Cyclocross, kind of back and forth. What? Last four years. If you want to watch a video of Vanderpool winning Amstel Gold with someone who doesn't know cycling and yeah. who has never seen you freak out about something on a screen like that, it's a great way to do it. Because you just like, how is he doing this? Oh my God, he's still chasing, and then he leads himself out, and then he wins. Yeah. That is crazy. His parents. My son are... and I watched that live. Yeah. And my son still asks me questions about. <laughs> that guy. Yeah. 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 How about the how about Perry Roubaix, or Tour of Flanders when he when he, he crashed or fell and got back? I mean, he yeah. was, it was like a two minute gap to the leaders. It was just completely insane. Um, but I think those guys are really exciting for our sport on the on the upper level, and it's got to excite mm -hmm. you coming from cyclocross, right? Well, yeah. I mean, we were trying to talk about it um, a little bit yesterday, but the this idea that you can be a cyclist who does these these multiple disciplines, those guys really are like that, but it's not just them. It's all Philippe came from cross. Sagan was a cross racer growing up, mountain biker. Um, Marianne Voss, I mean, we can't talk about these guys without talking about someone like Marianne Voss who was doing this for years now. I mean, that was 10 years ago. She was road and cyclocross world champion. Pauline Ferrand Prevost, she was road, mountain bike, and cyclocross the same year as an elite. Um, that's that's the new model of who these top riders are and yeah. and they're crushing it yeah but that's what you're trying to do with USA cycling Europe has that infrastructure already so people can move around in multiple disciplines and have the support across the board 
USA Cycling, the talent might just go unnoticed. Well, that's, yeah, I think that you're right. Like the way that we, if we were Belgium and we saw this talent come up, we would basically give them any of these things to plug into or out of, and then you'd still have them in the, in the community. But what we have done in the past is, is have someone come up through one, one channel, one path, and when they top out or they kind of fizzle out, they don't go to another one. We don't have these, the ability to, to jump across these different pathways while a country like Belgium would or, or even um, the UK, Australia. Australia, I think they're pretty stuck in, in what they do now, but that would be the goal is to really have this you know, ability to follow an athlete through their maturity and, and send them on the way that, that they want to go to, but also where they're best suited. And if we had been able to test someone like Ashton Lambie from, you know, a local mountain bike race, like when he was doing it 10 years ago, who knows what you would have found. Um, but I think that's, that's a goal that we would like to see because the way that we ride bikes now is very different than we rode 20 years ago. And who's been to a race? Ray, you've been to a race where you've had professionals in the race with you. I think you had Finney and Gary Kansas this year. What was the experience like for you? And then I want I want you guys' comments on what you think of that new the new world of having these, you know, division one professionals racing with, with amateurs at these big gravel events. Yeah, I mean I I mean my perspective on it was that it really I was I've, I've talked to you a bit about it. Just like there's no other sport that I can think of. You don't get to go throw passes with Tom Brady. Mm -hmm. You know, just because you're a football fan. Yeah. You know, like that doesn't happen, but you're kind of out there and you're in your moment, you're, you know, you're dialed in, but then you kind of are shoulder to shoulder with Ted King or Finney or these guys. And so I think that gravel aspect of kind of like democratizing the entire Peloton is a lot of fun, you know, and you also, just like we did at SBT, like, you know, you can kind of like push yourself at that pace for as long as you can go to kind of feel that feel that so I mean it's I think it's really one of the accessible elements of you know gravel that makes it probably fun for the, those guys but it's certainly a lot of fun for you know the, the weekend warrior guys that are trying to get better so yeah it's kind of a unique you know, when you think about sports as a whole like where do you ever get to you don't you don't jump into a NASCAR race. <laughs> You're like me me. Hey guys, I'm right here. I'm drafting. I think. Yeah, so I, it's a it's a great question. We'll we'll get back to uh, going into the gravel thing, but so there is a new alliance with USA Cycling, Nike, and eight of the other large youth cycling organizations in the in the country. Um, Nike is more race focused, high school level. There are other groups that are doing some stuff, stuff with uh, middle school. Um, Nike is middle, middle school. In middle school, it's large largely known for high school. Um, but so that's a new that's a new alliance. Um, Rob Demartini is coming later today. You guys get to meet him tomorrow. He'll be riding with us. He's our CEO at USA Cycling, um, so you can definitely pin him down for any of these questions. But that's a really huge thing because 
Nike was started because USA Cycling wasn't doing enough in youth mountain biking. We were so focused on this upper layer of elite level riders that there was no real development planning or programming in place. And so Nike started and has blossomed. And it's now um, one of the, the probably the biggest accomplishments that I could possibly be a part of is to connect Nike and USA Cycling and say, hey, you know what? USA Cycling didn't do it right. Um, I'm totally okay saying that there were mistakes made that has led us to this situation, but here's where we're going to go. And we're going to go this way together. Um, and so that's, that's coming to fruition and it's, it's going to be great. So there will be re reciprocation, uh, between Nike riders and USA cycling riders. We will gain, you know, tenfold by the number of junior riders who will go to a junior race at races that we would traditionally have, but we're also going to go more towards what they do as well. So it's, it's, it will be great. Sounds good. You want to, uh, you want to get back to riding, riding oh, gravel Jay. as a, as a pro? Would you have uh, I mean, I wish that was an option when, when I was racing. I think the sport's always about access from being on the roadside of the Tour de France that close to, to the action to, you know, just being able to interact with with the riders a lot more than you would in any, any other sport i guess my only draw like possible downside to it is i don't want it to devalue what the world tour is mm -hmm. if these world tour guys are showing up at leadville exactly and their what ass said yesterday yeah i don't know it's it's a tough we'll see how it plays out i think it's good it's great for the fans to get to ride and race against people they look up to riding the tour de france but at the same time i don't they really need to, to deliver during those events. They need to win them or define them. Right. You can't just show up and get 30th at all these things. I, I don't know. We'll see how Do you think they're nervous? Works. I mean, like, if you're if you're Taylor Finney, you got Ashton Lambie you don't even know about. This guy's some super human dude lined up next to you, and you start going, and it's like, whoa. Yeah. I mean, well, these guys are getting fourth and fifth. Before Kenza, um, yeah. I was at the EF house, and Lachlan's like, so what's the star like? Is it is it scary? <laughs> yeah. I'm like, yeah, kind of. And then when you get on the first tour road and it's like, uh, there's two two lines and there's 4,000 people. You gotta get in the, in the line and it's really hard to get around someone. So if you're a hundred people back, like if he were, he'd have to ride through the middle to get up there. Um, but I don't think he would be scared of, of someone who's um, who's unknown. I think that's where it's like, that's a great uh, perspective giver is to have someone who is established and they're actually racing to have someone match them and then maybe even beat them. That's a story that everyone can get behind, even if you're going to be beat, beaten by that person. Mm -hmm. It's, uh, you know, Leadville, I think, was really the first race to, to kind of capture that mm -hmm. in, a, in a big way because yeah. everyone did start together. Yeah. But the guy, the guy who won Kansas wasn't one of the Pro Tour guys. They got like second, third, fourth. He's Austin, yeah. But he's also a pro. So he he makes... Well, no, so that's pro. Pro is his label. Colin has eight sponsors who give him enough money to make a living. So he is a pro. But he's a privateer. So he's not on an established pro team. Um, and there has there have been some movements in the offseason that are just hilarious to, to know. But... Um, he, he's very much in demand by the real pro teams, but they're not going to be real pro teams very much longer unless they really get 
into this thing and understand it because a guy like that is going to take the lunch money of the real pros all day long if, if he gets a chance. Um, last thing, and then, and then we'll wrap up and, and, and bring Tyler and, and Mari up here. You did a really fun camp pre-tour with Alan. In, oh, yeah. In Andorra, where was it? Andorra. Andorra. Yeah. Um, talk about that. Like, how did that thing come into fruition? And did you have fun? Was it interesting? Was it hard? Did, Who, was it who's ridden an e-bike? E-bike, e-bike? That's it? Okay. E-bikes are great. <laughs> I can I can promise you that. Um, Alan at Scratch was doing a, a training camp. He, he works with TJ Van Garter, and TJ was trying to figure out how to get back to his best. Um, and one of the things that was happening was that when TJ would go do his big climbing efforts, there were so few people that would be able to train with him. And so he's he was trying to figure out a way to get TJ engaged and like kind of spark some new efforts and you know attacking and like the fun things that happen in a bike race for us when we're doing it for fun but when you're when you're chopping wood for your job it's really lonely and hard and will just break your mind if, if you let it um so he's like hey what do you think about coming to ride an e-bike with tj and help him train and so we went to san inez uh figueroa one of the mountains at the end of the valley um and so I rode e-bikes with him. We climbed Fig four times in three days. And I was on an e-bike and I loved it. And all I had to do is, is yank him along, um, basically try and kill him over, over and over again. And then he just had to try and chase me. And so we did the same thing in Andorra. But it was with Mike Woods and TJ and Simon Clark, another rider on EF. Um, but it was awesome. I had the ability to ride at their speed, which I've never been able to do in my entire life. And to see how fast they really are going, like we look on TV and it's like, oh, that's pretty cool. They're, they're flying. It's like, no, no, they're actually flying. Yeah. It is so fast. So from an e-bike perspective, it allowed me to just like play a super fantasy camp. I mean, way beyond anything like this. Like I was in it and it was a blast, but they got a lot out of it. I mean, the training was really strong for them. And they enjoyed it at all. The bike held up. Everything was good. We had two batteries. Um, we were doing 120, 140K a day, 10 to 15,000 feet of climbing. Souped up bike though. Alan worked on the program. We, we made some adjustments with the software. <laughs> <laughs> so we hit 105K an hour in the descent. How, how about the, with the weight awesome. of the thing? Was it balanced nicely? Oh yeah. You could just, no, no problems. Big fat wheels. Big fat tires, 32 slicks. And the bike weighs 45 pounds. Love it. It was awesome. It looked fun. That's for sure. <laughs> Anyways, thanks, guys. You're awesome. Yep. Appreciate thanks, it. Thanks, Robert. Awesome. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Blackberry Podcast. Continue following the journey wherever you subscribe. Thank you to our guests, interviewers, and audience. Dive into more stories, videos, photos, and podcast episodes on blackberryfarm.com and blackberrymountain.com. Make a great day.